0: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel, broadcasting remotely. It's important to not lose sight of the fact so many Americans have died from COVID-19, over 119,000 people. They include more than 4,200 people in Connecticut. People we know have also recovered from the disease, but what they go through can be really difficult. Today, Where We Live, we wanna learn more about what recovery from COVID-19 looks like for people in our community. Have you or someone you know been hospitalized due to COVID-19? How would you describe your recovery? We want to hear from you today, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now coming up, we're going to also learn how survivors are donating their blood plasma to help others defeat the virus. First, we want to talk about the effect COVID-19 has on someone after they've been hospitalized. Joining us now is a Connecticut resident who is recovering after being diagnosed with with this respiratory illness. Uh, Richard Gard is a Connecticut resident, also a lecturer at Yale Law School, oh, I'm sorry, Yale School of Music and Director of Music at St. Thomas More Chapel and Catholic Center. Richard, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Lucy.
0: So tell us before you were diagnosed, uh, was it around the time that the pandemic started and, and how were you feeling before you started to feel a little bit off?
1: I was considered very healthy and very fit um a sailor I'm a, an advanced scuba diver and I'm um very active at uh, Yale with all my students my choirs uh, I run the world's largest online uh, free hymnal for churches and uh, I was also very uh, my wife and I were very careful with um uh, washing and um, you know trying to be safe but never ever thought that um I would I would be sick and um uh, I I became sick in early March at some point <clears throat> and uh then it went yeah I got I got sick really fast after that mm-hmm. but before then I would have never thought it, Ever, that I would become so ill or ever, ever come close to losing my life. Mm.
0: So tell us when you said you started to feel off in March, uh, how did you feel and how quickly did you have to go to the hospital?
1: Uh, it was uh, one night I was having tremendous, like um, my heart was beating out of control. I couldn't breathe. And uh, so my wife insisted that I call my uh, doctor um, with the uh, Yale Health Plan and she thought that I'd had a heart attack, possibly, and told me to go right into emergency. And uh, while I was in there, this I would have this crushing chest pain, uh, inability to breathe, and uh, a headache, you know, eventually. So the pain was so bad that I was in, I didn't realize they were giving me morphine. And uh, But soon I told them, I said, I don't think I've had a heart attack because I, I feel like maybe I have the flu. And they said, so eliminate heart attack, yes not sure what to do with me and because really none of the pandemic here had really started and eventually they decided to test me for a flu and they took a swab and that took a couple of hours to come back while I was still very distressed laying in in emergency and I'll never forget the doctor came back and said you do not have the flu. I said, okay, great. He said, no, not good. Oh. It means you probably have new coronavirus. We do not have a test yet. We are going to put you in isolation now. And so I was the first uh, person to um, be suspected of coronavirus at Yale New Haven Hospital and for the university. And uh, the university swung into action immediately, canceling when they realized, you know, one of the faculty. Mm. Was now hospitalized with it and the hospital, and they said, you know, we have been studying what to do with this, but we're somewhat making it up as we go now. That you know you were really here, and um, so uh, yeah, I was I was very ill by that time. Mm.
0: That must have been um, so scary when your doctor said that they think this is uh, from the new coronavirus. What was your reaction? I Obviously, you were feeling ill, but your 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 family must have been so scared, Richard.
1: Yeah, the the work for me. I always thought, well, I'm healthy. It's going to be like the flu, and I'm going to get over it. I'm a positive person. But my my wife, they immediately she had stayed there with me, and they just, you know, threw her out of the hospital immediately and told her to get into isolation. And you know, we didn't even really get to say goodbye because they mm-hmm. just ripped me out of there so quickly and into one of their uh, negative airspace isolation rooms, which was a very Very nice. I mean, there. And and while I'm talking about, I really owe my life in so many ways to Yale New Haven Hospital and Yale Health Plan. Who, the doctors, everybody, you know, approached it. They just so open to trying things and um, being careful. And when I was in great danger, moving with utmost speed. And um, and since then, supporting me, I'm just constantly supported by them. And Mm -hmm. so that's. I just while we're here at I, I really owe my life to all the doctors, nurses and staff at Yale New Haven and at Yale Health Plan. Mm. But yes, it was very scary because then you're in a room and um this I never realized uh, how important it is to see people um especially I, I as a teacher and a, a, a you know a conductor, I work with a lot of people and um from that point on, for the rest of that month, I never saw another face because except on t v which really doesn't count as seeing a person the rest of the time, everybody was extremely protected behind you know double masks shields uh hats the whole thing i I only saw eyes and I just learned people mm. by their voice but um and that I realized after is was real it can really drive you into like a depression or mm. like a a real sense of being alone, of not seeing any person, only eyes. Yeah.
0: You're hearing Richard Gard again. He's a Connecticut resident, a lecturer at Yale School of Music. He's recovering from uh, having COVID-19. Today, we're focusing on what that looks like for so many Connecticut residents and their families. Uh, We just heard Richard say, uh, when you're diagnosed with COVID-19, you have to be isolated uh, from others. And that is a scary time to uh, not be feeling well, but also to not see your loved ones uh, in person. So Richard, when you were at the hospital, um, can you recount what those days were like how long were you hospitalized and at times uh, were you preparing for the worst uh
1: well when when it was the worst i was in a la la land um uh, but that was a terrible time for my uh, wife and kids Mm -hmm. um but i i was hospitalized a little more than uh two weeks altogether and i was in icu uh for five days and i was uh I was on a ventilator for just about three days, so not too long for any of that, uh, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason I'm, I'm having a good survival. You know, I'm, I'm recovering because I wasn't on the, the uh, ventilator too long. But and, 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 you know, what's strange is it wasn't all bad, it's, as, as, and I had a lot of time to think when I was there. It's like there's there's pain, there's guilt, there's comfort and there's joy that I I had in the whole thing, because of course there's lots of pain from it. And there's lots of, especially since they didn't know what was hurting me, there's a lot of blood draws and there are huge IVs that are associated with being intubated and, and you're tied in a bed and you have a tube in you and you have to just chill and, and just go with this thing when it's breathing for you. But, um, and for me, it's was uh, they would have the TV news on at, at times, and you know at that time there were so many statistics of how many more are sick, how many had died, and after I woke up uh, and I was intubated and I was in ICU, and I would see those numbers, and I realized that I could have been uh, just a digit up there, and when I was in the coma, I I did have. Um, dreams or or things that happened to me, and I realized that really all the time the line between being alive and dead is an extremely thin line, like you could step back and forth with ease um and and i said there's there's guilt because at the same time, I felt so bad for what my my wife and my kids went through, I think way worse than I went through being sick and mm-hmm. Also all of my my programs I have students who are graduating who are you know hoping to start a career as a teacher, I have students that were a prime ready to start a career as a performer. My all of my church music things that I do that are out there and just at a time when when really everybody needed to pull together to do things and and you know I was I was a burden rather than that. And and another guilt thing that I never realized would happen to me is that after that and for more than a month after I was discharged, I would have uh, night terrors. I was afraid to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that would revolve around that I felt guilty that I was one of the ones that survived and maybe I was not supposed to be here anymore. And, and you know, I had guiltily and selfishly taken back the chance to be alive. Um which I would have never thought, because I'm a very positive person, I would have never mm-hmm. realized that, again, Yale Yale Health and my doctors were there to, you know, tell me that stuff like this could happen, that people mm-hmm. that are in ICU and are on a ventilator have a lot of issues later.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: well, I wanted but to talk that, about yeah. that,
0: Richard. Again, that you said that you were in the hospital for about two weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. What was it like leaving the hospital? and tell us about some of the therapy, uh, whether it was uh, physical therapy or just talking with your doctor to figure out, you know, am I still having certain symptoms and and how I can get back to my my full functioning?
1: Right. Well, the first time I was in, i they said I was over the coronavirus in like three days. They said, Oh, you're so healthy. you already got over it, and uh, so. But they kept me for two more days just to watch that it didn't come back. It didn't. I went home, and I had a, a set of you know I had to have a separate bedroom, kept a separate bathroom for my wife. Very very careful mask, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And after two days, my fever kept getting worse and worse until I was running 104 all the time, and so they readmitted me immediately, and that. I just went like into organ failure uh, Mm. within hours after that. It was that was horrible. I cannot describe how horrible it was to do that. But then, as as I prepared to leave, like the day before, I was uh, discharged the second time. um, uh, They they had you know my doctors there went through and the nurses also you know even like practicing how to how to put on the protective gear and how I would use the bathroom, how I would eat, how I would interact with my family and also letting me know what I would be able to do because I, I still have, um, my, my lungs and my heart were damaged in the inflammation. And so I have the the pain of not being able to be very active still. Um, and, uh, but what they also did, because I I'd lost a tremendous amount of weight in the week, I lost like 15% of my weight, and I, I was a thin person to begin with, mm-hmm. um, I had immediately a dietitian they uh, assigned to me, and who set me up with, with a diet, I was eating five full meals a day, which was actually really hard to get down, because I was still so ill. Mm-hmm. Um, but to bring my weight safely up again, and You know, not too fast, not slow, lots of protein, so much protein that I can. And that um, how breathing exercises and ways to try to get my lungs back, as if I still have, um, even now, I still have uh, like pneumonia in my lungs. Mm. Um, So,
0: and and how often are you, again, whether you're seeing a doctor or talking to your doctor to make Uh, sure that you. Or up and I, I, mean, up and I up.
1: have uh, I have quite a team. They keep mm-hmm. track of me by phone, by um telemedicine mm-hmm. and uh, procedures I think I can safely say about two days per week every week since I left the hospital i' I've, I've, I've been somewhere for uh, you know a scan, some imaging, uh, because a lot of it is they don't know all what can happen to a person after this, such as, 3 weeks ago i suddenly lost half of the hair in my head for a short while i had that my sense of taste was off and things like specific things like coffee which i love suddenly turned in it tasted like a hair conditioner just just one day suddenly there's and uh, the things with uh, the damage to the heart and the way that it damages one ventricle and things that it does in your lungs and muscle weakness so um, I, I feel like I'm partly um, contributing because I am the first one. So um, I am part of a, a, a DNA study mm-hmm. and to see why a person like I had this, uh, the second round called the cytokine storm. Mm-hmm. Why did I get so sick? And others, you know, after I got better, why did I suffer this way? So they're looking, is there something in my you know, genetics that mm-hmm. predisposed me to that? So um I I feel like I should have a parking spot down at mm. Yale New Haven. I've I've been there so so often, but like I say, they have been so supportive and and uh, socially mm-hmm. and you know um, psychically and everything. They've mm-hmm. been with me all the way, and that makes you really need that much more than I would have ever mm-hmm. imagined.
0: Well, Richard, we're so glad to hear that you're doing better. But I want to ask you before we let you go, what do you want listeners to know about this disease or how, our, how we should be supporting people in our community who are recovering, even their families? Because, again, once you are discharged, there's still a process that, that, that needs to happen. And right. I'm just curious what your thoughts are as we see the state reopening, as more and more people are wanting to get back to normal.
1: Yeah. As as I, like I said, my wife and I have an acquaintance in California who died just two days ago. So even as things are coming back to normal and, and me as much as anybody, I'm a very like busy person. I want to get back out there again, but to remain extremely careful and vigilant that most people will not get as sick as me. But if you or somebody in your family then gets it, it's it changes your entire life and it's still going on. And I was very careful about washing and touching people and being in close things before I got sick. And still, I got sick, but for the family of a person who is ill, realize that um, part of it is just not being able to see your loved one or go visit them or also feel like you're supporting them by coming by or you know sending flowers or something all of that is off limits. So instead I would say instead of showering attention on the person who's sick, shower some attention and flowers and mm-hmm. gifts and food on uh, the you know the spouse and the the family of someone that's in the hospital.
0: Mm-hmm. Richard Gard, again, is a Connecticut resident. He's a lecturer at Yale School of Music, also Director of Music at St. Thomas More Chapel. Richard, again, uh, we're really, really grateful that you're doing better, and we thank you for sharing your story with us.
1: Thank you for having me on, Lucy.
0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchil. Coming up, we're going to learn more about how doctors and therapists are helping COVID-19 survivors rehabilitate. We also want to hear from you. Join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on what it's like to recover from COVID-19. Since the start of the pandemic, medical experts have said this disease is especially dangerous for older Americans. Many of the people who've died from COVID-19 in our state were nursing home residents. Kaiser Health News reports even when older patients survive, they are unlikely to return to their previous level of functioning. Uh, For more about this, joining us now on the phone is Dr. April Prusky, she's assistant professor of physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and Neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Prusky, welcome to our show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: First, I wanted you to respond to Richard's story. Is it typical of people who have been hospitalized with COVID, especially if they're older?
2: So I think so. I think Richard has a very moving and powerful story. And a lot of the things that we know about the COVID infection and what we're learning about it is exactly what Richard said. A lot of patients, he was talking about having these dreams and things that were happening to him. Many patients are very delirious when they're in the hospital setting and they're not sure about exactly what's going on. And then they're very weak and they are having a lot of trouble breathing and trying to reacclimate to regular life afterwards and just feeling so short of breath is a very common occurrence for these COVID-19 patient survivors.
0: Can you tell me briefly um, when someone is hospitalized and they're on certain medication? Maybe they're on the ventilator. um, They're having problems. It's very uncomfortable. How are medical staff making them comfortable? What are some of the the drugs or um, uh, processes that people go through to help make these patients more comfortable while they're in the hospital?
2: So that's an excellent question. Um, What they do for the COVID-19 patients in the intensive care unit here at Johns Hopkins is they're trying to actually have family members involved frequently. Mm. And what they do is they have Zoom with the family members so that they're able to interact over tablets and be able to see their family members to help calm them down through the process.
0: Mm. And when we talk about therapists, uh, whether they're occupational or physical therapists, when do they come into the picture, Dr. Prusky?
2: So here at Hopkins, we've actually taken a very different approach. I think classically therapists come during the recovery stage. Mm -hmm. But because we know that the COVID virus is multisystemic, that we actually start evaluating these patients daily to see when a therapist can start to see the patient. And we can start to see these patients as early as in the intensive care unit. We are able to start their rehabilitation knowing that they're going to be very debilitated. We have a physical therapist come in, and that physical therapist evaluates what their strength is like. They work with them to see how they're able to kind of be able to just roll around in the bed, be able to sit at the edge of the bed. What's their balance like sitting at the edge of the bed? Then they try to stand with them and they try to walk with them a little bit. Then we have occupational therapists that come in and they work on those activities of daily living, things that we take for granted, brushing your teeth, getting yourself dressed, getting to the toilet. They start to help patients relearn how to do these things.
0: You can join our conversation here on Where We Live as we learn more about the recovery process for people diagnosed with COVID-19. Again, our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Jeff is calling in. Uh, he's a COVID-19 survivor and got care through Stanford Health. Jeff, welcome to our show. Jeff, are you oh, there? This, this Jeff?
3: Yeah. Hi, I guess. Hi uh, Jeff. I wasn't uh, it wasn't Stanford Health, though, it was UConn. And oh, Valley. I'm sorry,
0: the note okay. here was Stanford Health. So tell us, uh, uh, what was it like for you when you were diagnosed, and what's the recovery been like?
3: Wow, that's a long one. Uh, so I was diagnosed somewhere between uh, March 22nd, March 28th. On the night of March 25th, my wife noticed I wasn't eating, I wasn't drinking, uh, I couldn't keep food down or anything, so she called an ambulance, they came to our home in Farmington. And um, after diagnosing me real quick, they thought they might leave me alone until I coughed up some blood onto a napkin. And they immediately took me to a hospital uh, in Farmington. And uh, from that point on, after about two hours, I was in ICU. And a few hours later, I was on a ventilator. And I was on that ventilator for 15 days. Mm. um,
0: What do you remember about that time?
3: Nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember my wife calling the ambulance and I actually sent her a text message from the hospital before the the, the ICU trip. I don't remember doing that. So I was in a medically induced coma for the, all those days. Uh, and I remember coming out of it. And for about a half a day, I couldn't remember who I was or where I was or anything like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And now that you're home, Jeff, what are some lasting symptoms that you still have from COVID-19? What has it been like, uh, whether it's learning to talk again or learning to do activities that many of us take for granted?
3: All those things, but some of them come back quickly. Uh, walking in a straight line comes back and for me in five to 10 seconds, like you literally almost fall. And then you relearn typing took about 30 sec, to, seconds to a minute just to kind of reacclimate. I, I'm a pretty good uh, 60, 70 words a minute typist. So a lot of the menial things that you take for granted all need to kind of be relearned. Some of them come back quicker than others. Also I lost all my muscular strength uh, going up and down stairs took help for my wife. Um, I, it, it would take to do one or two stairs would take two or three minutes, just have to rest and then try another one. Um, but luckily for me, I've recovered very well. It's been two months since I got out of the hospital, and I'm almost 100% mentally recovered. Physically, I still need to gain more strength, but it's every day I get better. Every day I feel better after a, a very serious, almost uh, you know, dying uh, account of of being in the hospital and being in ICU.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, we thank you for calling in to share a little bit about what you went through. We're glad to hear that you're doing better. I wanted to go back to our guest uh, again, Dr. Prusky. Again, we hear about what Jeff went through uh, earlier, what Richard um, has experienced. What are some of the long-term side effects of COVID-19 that survivors may experience long after they've been discharged?
2: So we don't quite know everything that, patients who have COVID-19 will be experiencing the long-term as we continue to learn. But we can draw from other conditions that we know require extensive inpatient medical care. There is a syndrome called post-intensive care syndrome, and this persists long after patients leave the ICU. Patients can have cognitive symptoms such as decreased memory, thinking problems, difficulty talking, forgetfulness, poor concentration, trouble organizing and problem solving. And really importantly, is that they can also have a lot of emotional symptoms like PTSD, nightmares, anxiety, depression. They also have the physical symptoms of just this muscle weakness, fatigue, having decreased mobility, difficulty breathing and insomnia. And I think that what Richard said before, too, about supporting the family is very important as well, because many of these family members of patients who have COVID-19 can have emotional and mental symptoms as well. They experience anxiety and depression, feeling overwhelmed. They, too, have post-traumatic stress disorder. They can have grief. They can have a lot of changes in their sleep. And I think that it really takes a comprehensive team to help these patients. And what I mean by that comprehensive team is that it involves having your pulmonary doctor. and involves having a physical medicine and rehab or a physiatrist who really focuses on the function and the looking at the whole person about what they want to get back to, having physical therapists and occupational therapists and speech therapists and psychologists not only working with patients when they're in the hospital, but working with them once they leave the hospital. And I think that Richard also said that um, he was having a lot of telemedicine follow-ups, and mm-hmm. we do a lot of those telemedicine follow-ups for those patients so that when they are feeling very fatigued and. Are having trouble breathing, that they can connect with their physician and therapy team through telemedicine approaches to continue their recovery process.
0: Uh, certainly, Dr. Prusky, uh, this pandemic, COVID-19, has uh, produced a new population of patients that need uh, intensive uh, work even after they've been hospitalized, again, therapy. I'm just wondering Are there enough therapists who can respond to this new patient population? I'm thinking back to a Kaiser Health story uh, that I read about, um, you know, hospitals, are they able to connect people with the therapy they need? Because uh, some of those resources can be limited. They may not have as many therapists, depending on uh, the patient population that needs to recover.
2: That's right. There is always a limitation of resources. However, um, we can connect patients with therapists. And usually, actually, what we tell patients about therapy is that there's a lot of homework. So it's not just about going to that therapy session. It's about the homework that you take home from it and that you practice those exercises on your own. Um, We actually even developed a great packet for patients. It's called Bouncing Back from COVID-19 at Johns Hopkins, which kind of helps patients in a stepwise process and guidelines to be able to regain their muscle strength and be able to kind of Um, increase their tolerance and their endurance after they recover. Mm -hmm.
0: Dr. April Prusky, again, is an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation and neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Prusky, thank you for joining us here on Where We Live to talk about what you and your team are doing at Johns Hopkins. Thank you very much. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up, we're going to learn more about how hospitals are using plasma to treat people seriously ill from COVID-19. First, are you a member of Connecticut Public Radio? Do you appreciate the wide variety of conversations we have on Where We Live? Conversations that have continued throughout this pandemic? Then you can support WNPR with a pledge. Here are two members of my team to tell you more.
4: You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katie Talarski here with Carmen Baskoff, and we are asking for your support today, support for uh, local programming on Connecticut Public Radio. The number to call, again, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org. I'm joining you um, from here in our studios in Hartford. Carmen is uh, over Zoom at her home in New Haven. And um, Carmen, that's how you've been producing the show over the past uh, months. Um, how How's it going for you?
5: It's been really weird, Katie. I, I think it's it's been very strange to not be in the studio and seeing all of my colleagues, seeing Lucy, um, and uh, seeing our guests as well. Um, I, I guess it, one of the strangest things is that it's now starting to feel normal uh, to just hop on Zoom in my bedroom and and you know pull up our show, talk to our guests that way. Um, and I guess that is kind of the new world we're living in. But it, it, it definitely has been a big adjustment. I've been really impressed with our, our tech team at uh, Connecticut Public Radio who uh, stepped up and figured out how to get us, uh, you know, continue bringing us on air uh, from four, you know, four different people in four different locations plus guests all over the place. Um, figuring out how to do that, uh, you know, basically at the drop of the hat as this pandemic started. Um, so it's it's been an interesting experience, but I think. Uh, This has been a time that I've also felt, you know, really invigorated and really glad to be working in news and working in public radio Because I do think this is a time that that listeners have a lot of questions and in really, uh, you know There's there's so much to, to keep track of in terms of the pandemic in terms of the protests that have been happening around the Country around police brutality and racial injustice and and I really I think valued um You know, working on a show like Where We Live, where we have long form conversations, Um, you know, I I think obviously getting the latest headlines is really important. But I think it's also important to have a space where we are able to kind of slow things down and break things down and and have complex, nuanced conversations uh, with you know, policymakers, with big thinkers, and also with listeners and, and bringing listeners who have questions or have comments into the conversation with our callers who join us each and every day. Um, so I guess, you know, if that's something that you value and you're, you're realizing during this pandemic you're turning to to stay informed, we would love your your support. Uh, the number to call is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org slash donate.
4: That's one 800 584 or wnpr.org slash donate. Um, Carmen, one thing I've really appreciated about what you and your team have been doing on Where We Live ha- is um, just sort of the regular check-ins with the governor, um, with uh, just folks in the state who are running different organizations, who are making decisions about when schools are going to reopen, when businesses are going to reopen. You, know, I think Hearing, it, you know, it feels very chaotic, especially when you're sort of isolated in your house. There's so much news coming at you. Like, what, you know, what, and, and, and things change from day to day. Having this place where, you know, you could you could, you know, call in and ask a question to the governor or to the education commissioner or, or um, you know, the senator Chris Murphy. I think that that feels um, like a really important uh, public service. Um, but also hearing, you know, hearing those official voices, but also hearing um, voices from real people who are struggling in the state. Um, and that's something that I think Where We Live does really well. Um, so, again, uh, if you uh, our listeners are um, are um, tuning into Where We Live every day, if you have been listening throughout this, um, you know, throughout these past months and you are able to support this programming, uh, please call us now 1-800-584-2788. Uh, it's 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org.
5: Yeah, okay, I do think, you know, we we obviously talk to policymakers on the show at all times that, you know, in in the course of our programming, but I do think this has been, uh, you know, a particularly important time for us to be able to have on guests like the governor and have it in a format where we are able to take listener calls and, and put the listeners' questions and comments directly to the people making these really un- important decisions right now. I think uh, leaders in our state are having to make decisions and in, in, uh, new contingency plans that are really unlike anything we've seen before. Um, and having listeners giving their feedback on, you know, what matters is, is really important here as well. So the number to call 1-800-584-2788.
4: One eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight. Again, one eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight. Support where we live. Support our local programming, our local news, and uh, all the work that we do here at Connecticut Public Radio. Again, one eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight, or wnpr.org, and thanks.
0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy knobba The scientific community continues to look for effective treatments for COVID-19. One of the options involves plasma and transfusions to help people fighting the respiratory disease. For more on this, joining us on the phone now is Dr. Suzanne Rose. She's director of the Office of Research at Stanford Health, and she oversees the convalescent plasma clinical trial. Dr. Rose, welcome to our show.
6: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: I said convalescent plasma clinical trial. Can you describe what I'm talking about?
6: Absolutely, so plasma is something that we take from people who have recovered from an infection here, COVID-19, but it's certainly been used uh, in, in the last century to fight many different infections. And the what's inside the plasma that is most beneficial for people who are sick are antibodies. And these are molecules that have learned to recognize and fight off a virus that has caused the disease COVID-19. So we can separate plasma from blood of people who have recovered and administer it to the people who are currently fighting off the disease because when people are fighting off the disease, they actually don't have antibodies yet. We developed antibodies uh, a week to a few weeks after we've actually been exposed to a virus or bacteria for the first time. So at Stanford, uh, we have been engaged since early April Mm -hmm. in providing convalescent plasma to our sickest patients. Uh, that were, you know, in the fight of their life, in the ICUs, um, with with this terrible disease.
0: Before I ask you more about uh, how many of your patients have uh, gone through uh, this and gotten convalescent plasma, I wanted to back up and you said that historically this has been used uh, to treat other diseases. Can you talk more about uh, that and how uh, doctors were able to figure out that, again, transfusions with plasma can help people when they don't have antibodies?
6: Sure. So this goes back to the 1800s when uh, diphtheria was, was a real problem throughout the world. And doctors and scientists figured out that if there were animals that were immunized against this disease, they could recover the blood or serum from the animals or from people who had recovered and give it to people who were sick. So Certainly, a a lot of thought went into it then, and then we saw a resurgence of using convalescent plasma during the last pandemic of of our century, Uh, the Spanish influenza uh, pandemic, where many people died. And then from there, it's been used in the management of measles, hemorrhagic fever. Mm -hmm. It was used with success uh, in the Ebola epidemic that occurred mostly in Africa, And recently, other coronaviruses that are members of the COVID-19 family, MERS and Mm -hmm. SARS, it's also been shown effective in those outbreaks, even though we didn't really see those outbreaks here in the United States, it was used overseas and shown to be effective.
0: So we heard from two uh, different uh, men in Connecticut who were diagnosed with COVID, and thankfully, uh, they've recovered. So can you walk us through what the transfusion, transfusion is like for someone who's had COVID and now um, they the, they've agreed to have their plasma taken out?
6: Well, in the beginning, we were really targeting our sickest patients. So at Stanford Health, uh, we were at the center in the state of Connecticut, and at one point we had four ICUs open. And so we did have patients who didn't require the need of a breathing machine. They did not need to be ventilated, but we did target the patients first who were on mechanical ventilators. So in that instance, those patients are heavily sedated, as you heard the, the two men say. They were in la-la land. They don't really know what's going on. So we actually had to consent the families. And um, many of these families were still in contact with because we would speak to them on a daily basis and you know, give them updates and you know, let them know when we had plasma come in because in the beginning, it was in such short supply because this happened so fast that to find donors who were fully recovered Mm -hmm. uh, to donate plasma uh, was uh, really a a difficult experience. So for those patients in the ICUs, we would consent the families. And uh, then once we had plasma, it was Two units of plasma. So, each unit has about 200 milliliters of plasma. It's this gold color. And it's basically hung transfused over two hours with a one-hour wait in between. We wanted, wanted to make sure there were no transfusion reactions. And then as long as there were no reactions, the second unit of plasma was given over another two hours. So, the whole process was about five hours. And I'm happy to report that we had no transfusion reactions, which you know in the literature and and talking to colleagues from across the United States and the globe they also did not and continue to not have uh, seen transfusion reactions in the patients that have been treated with convalescent plasma.
0: When you mentioned transfusion reactions uh, what would that be if if that had popped up?
6: So uh, people can get rashes they can have trouble breathing we certainly worried about overloading people with volume because these are really sick people. And we're talking about giving them 400 milliliters of extra fluid. Uh, and as we know, COVID-19 affects the lungs. It also affects the heart. Mm-hmm. So we were always watching to make sure there are no changes in their vital signs and their blood pressure, a rise or a drop, you know, anything unexpected. Fevers sometimes occur when people have transfusion reactions as well.
0: Again, uh, you're hearing on the phone, uh, here on Where We Live, Dr. Suzanne Rose, Director of the Office of Research at Stanford Health. She oversees the Convalescent Plasma Clinical Trial. Uh, Dr. Rose, you mentioned that people have not had uh, side effects from the transfusion. How many of your patients have been treated with this plasma? And again, because it's a trial, uh, I'm just wondering um, how much longer does it need to go forward before it's considered successful?
6: So we've treated 81 patients so far, 46 of those patients were in our various intensive care units, and there was one day where we looked at the list and we said, we've treated every patient in the ICU, and ICUs, it's still so weird to say that because we're finally back to one ICU. So then we moved out to the other medical floors where patients needed help with breathing but were not on ventilators. And as of today, we've treated 35 of those patients uh, that were on the general medical floors. So we've seen 52 patients discharged, 31 of our patients that were intubated have been extubated, and there's only a few that were in the ICUs that you know remain in the hospital. As far as when this becomes a standard of care therapy... There are large national trials going on. We actually recently joined the Mayo Clinic mm-hmm. and the National COVID-19 Convalescent Plasma Project, so we're actively contributing data to that. We had to make a decision early on to not make this a randomized clinical trial because we just didn't have other therapies to offer patients. So there are da- there is data coming out from randomized trials, and that's basically when one person gets plasma and one person doesn't. So You can truly look at one patient versus another and say, did this have an effect? We've chosen to look retrospectively, meaning at all the patients who came in before we were uh, able to offer convalescent plasma and we have a pretty evenly matched population where we can start to make some conclusions. You know, for example, in the beginning, when patients were coming in, about 50% for 50% of patients in the ICU were dying. Mm. Uh, it's a terrible disease; it, people can succumb very quickly. Uh, one of the gentlemen talked about cytokine storm. We see that where people seem to be stable, and then their immune system just kicks up this tremendous response, where they become very sick very quickly, and and people can die from it. Since we've initiated the convalescent plasma program, and also have fortunately had access to remdesivir, uh, we have seen that number increase. So now we're seeing you, know, 75 to 80% of patients are living that had to go into the ICU and be put on breathing machines. We had one patient who was on a breathing machine for 63 days and was mm-hmm. discharged last week. So uh, those are certainly tremendous successes that, that we're very proud of in this program.
0: Again, we're talking with you from Stanford Health, uh, really uh, the part of the state that had seen a lot of cases compared to other regions of our, of our state of Connecticut. Um, as we uh, move forward with uh, reopening, uh, Dr. Rose, what do you want uh, listeners to think about in terms of again uh, following certain guidelines to, to make sure that they don't contract this disease? Well,
6: the guidelines that the CDC have have put out are the guidelines we should all be following. Social distancing, six feet apart, you know, we uh... need to continue wearing masks when we go out in public I know certain people are struggling saying I don't want to wear a mask it really protects you and it protects the people around you we know there are people walking around who are asymptomatic carriers and through no fault of their own their body is just able to fight off the disease but they're still able to spread the disease and a mask is a fantastic way to prevent any of us that might be walking around as asymptomatic carriers from infecting people who are around us, frequent hand-washing, wiping down surfaces. Uh, Certainly, all of these have been shown and will continue to be very effective in preventing further transmission of of COVID-19 and keeping people out of the hospital. And certainly, there are trials coming out. We've heard a lot about vaccine trials. So, we look forward to participating, hopefully, in, in some of those. But it really comes down to social distancing, wearing a mask, Washing your hands and and really being cognizant that it, there might be some slight discomfort that we feel in wearing a mask when it's hot out, but it is they, these are life-saving measures that fortunately, you know we know will work against the spread of this mm. disease. And if people have had the disease, we would certainly say, please consider donating convalescent plasma. This continues to be the forefront of our therapy here at Stanford and a lot of hospitals around the country and and in our tri-state area. So New York Blood Bank, the American Red Cross, great places to contact if you've had infection and recovered and feel well enough to donate.
0: Well, we want to thank Dr. Suzanne Rose, again, Director of the Office of Research at Stanford Health, who oversees a convalescent plasma clinical trial. Dr. Rose, thank you so much for the information today. Thank you. We'll also link up uh, to uh, information about the American Red Cross, which also has a convalescent plasma program. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel, today's show produced by Tess Terrible. It's also our end-of-the-year fiscal uh, campaign to gather more support from the community for quality programs. Please support WMPR with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more.
5: And you've been listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Katie Talarski, taking a few minutes of your time to ask you to reflect on the programming you've been hearing here on where we live and on Connecticut Public Radio. And if this is something that you rely on, and something that uh, you turn to uh, each day in the nine to 10 a.m. hour, or maybe in the evening while you're listening to keep you informed about what's happening in our state and in all of the important discussions going on during this really unprecedented time, we're asking for you, um, you know, if you are in a financial position to do so, to step up and uh, help support Connecticut Public Radio by making a pledge uh, today The number to call is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org
4: slash donate. 1-800-584-2788 is the number to call to support where we live. If you are a person right now who is glued to your phone, uh, scrolling through Twitter, just you know, a, a, a news junkie. Uh, one way that you can support Connecticut Public Radio and get your news on your device is um, for a gift of $19 a month. Uh, you can get either uh, the New York Times digital subscription or the Was- Washington Post digital subscription and at the same time support Connecticut Public Radio. So um, that's an option for you. But the most important thing is that you call, is that you help to support the local programming here on Connecticut Public Radio. As we've mentioned, uh, this is a hard time for people. Not everyone is able to give, and we understand that. Um, So if you are able to, we're asking you to step forward. We have a $75,000 goal for this uh, pledge drive, and um, it's just helping us to uh, reach our goal for the end of the fiscal year. We cannot do it without your help. This is public radio. It's listener-supported radio. Um, So please step forward if you can right now, 1-800-584-2788 or WNPR
5: again that number is one 2788 and Katie I think you raise a really important point that again this is like this is not an easy time financially uh, for many people and, and we definitely understand that um, and I guess you know the, the to me this also says that you know if, if you are someone who is you know relatively speaking um, you know doing all right uh, you know financially despite the pandemic and, and you maybe are in a position that you have a little bit extra that you're able to give you um, this would be a really big help because, it, you know, again, we we want our programming to be available to everyone, including people who aren't in a position to donate right now. Um, so if you're able to step up and maybe make that contribution that allows us to keep bringing programming to, to people who aren't in a position uh, to give right now because of these really challenging times we're facing right now during the pandemic, uh, we would love your pledge of support. Um, I think this has been a time that uh, I really valued public radio. And so, again, one 800 2788 or you can go online wnpr.org donate and thanks.